Because of Jesus, God says to you, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel, is that in Christ, God says to every single one of us, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And yes, this includes you too, ladies. Not that your gender gets lost in the gospel, because it doesn't, but the idea that we are all sons of God has to do with the biblical idea that it's the son that gets the inheritance. So throughout the New Testament, believers, both men and women, are called sons. So ladies, you have to give a little here, okay? Because the men have to give a little because we have to be the bride of Christ. So you give a little, we give a little. Everyone wins. So, with that out of the way, so you're not obsessing over that over the the whole entire sermon, let me tell you again that because of Jesus, God says to you and God says to me, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, that's the application from our passage this morning. If you are in union with Christ and you are trusting what he has done on your behalf through his life, death, and resurrection, then this is true for you. God is overwhelmingly pleased with you. Overwhelmingly pleased right now. As the prophet Zephaniah says, God rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you with his love. He exalts over you with loud singing. You bring a smile to his face. In in spite of your sin, in spite of your failures, in spite of how you never measure up, God is overwhelmingly pleased with you, his child, right now. All because of Jesus. And that means that the words that echoed throughout the universe when Jesus came up out of the Jordan River at his baptism, they now reverberate and echo over your life for now and for all of eternity. God is pleased with you completely right now. So just take a moment. And breathe that in. And then we'll dive into Mark's gospel in chapter 1. Let all of your distractions go. And just rest in that truth. And then feel his fatherly love for you this morning. Feel his fatherly affection for you. So Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And hear the word of the Lord In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So our first response to this passage should be one of confusion. It should mirror that of John the Baptist, who in Matthew's gospel basically said this to Jesus when he came to John to be baptized. John said something like this, "Uh, Cousin, why are you coming to be baptized by me? I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Now, remember what we saw last week. People were flocking out to John to be baptized him because he was preaching a message of comfort. His sermons emphasize God's kindness to sinners. And that caused 
crowds of people throughout Israel to come clean and to confess and repent of their sins. They knew they were sinners. They knew they needed to be cleansed. And it was God's kindness that led them to repentance. So when Jesus shows up to be baptized, his relative John is confused because John knew who Jesus was. He knew, John knew that he needed to be baptized by Jesus, not the other way around. So the question is, why did Jesus come to be baptized if he had no sins to confess? Jesus answers John and he answers us with his words in Matthew's gospel in chapter 3 verse 15 where he says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus talking about here? What righteousness needs to be fulfilled? We should back up even further. What is righteousness? Well, the answer to that is exactly what sparked the Protestant Reformation. And this month, churches around the world are celebrating the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. And what Jesus said to his cousin John is exactly why Martin Luther and many of the other Reformers were integral in seeing the Reformation come about. What Jesus is talking about here and what Martin Luther and the other reformers were talking about is justification by faith. That sinners are justified. That sinners are declared and pronounced righteous by God. That sinners receive a gift from God, righteousness, And that renders them acceptable or not guilty in God's sight. So guilty people who are still sinners, that's us, guilty people who still keep on sinning can stand as not guilty before a holy God because of Jesus' righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. There is a righteousness that needs to be fulfilled by all human beings because all human beings have sinned. There is a righteousness that we all need in order to have a relationship with God. And Jesus came to fulfill it because none of us could ever do it. In other words, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to live a perfect life and never sin. I mean, Jesus drove through roundabouts and never sinned. I sinned on Friday or Saturday in a roundabout because a U-Haul truck almost crashed into me because it was going the wrong way in the roundabout. And Jesus encountered U-Hauls in his days, camels or something, through roundabouts, and he never sinned once. That alone should be staggering. He came to live a perfect life and never sinned so that he could impute or credit His righteousness, his perfection to our account. And so in order to be in a relationship with God, in order to be adopted into his family, in order to hear the words, you are my beloved son, or you are my beloved daughter, with you I am well pleased, in order to hear those words, you have to be perfect. Jesus said so in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So who among us is perfect? No one. That means that unless someone comes along and gives us the perfect righteousness that we need, we cannot enjoy God as Father. 
Unless someone outside of us comes and gives us, as a gift, the necessary righteousness, gives us a spotless record, then we are lost and doomed forever. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he did just that. He came to live the perfect life that we could never live because we're sinners. And he came to die the perfect death that we all deserve because we're sinners. And when Jesus did that, he fulfilled all of God's law for us. And he credits all of that to our account when we trust in him. But we need to get back to Mark's gospel because we left Jesus standing there in the Jordan River and he's all soaking wet and something very incredible is about to happen. So look at verse 10. And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Notice that this is the first time Mark is using the word immediately in his gospel. He will use it 40 more times because Mark writes with a fast pace to keep his narrative moving from episode to episode to episode. It's how he sucks you in so that you will binge watch his gospel. Mark uses verbs throughout his gospel and he doesn't care if you can't catch your breath. He just keeps moving. And what happens when Jesus immediately comes up out of the water? Something that affects your eternity. Something so incredible that you'll never read these words again and be nonchalant about them. Because what happened that day? Just as Jesus emerged from the Jordan River, as water ran down his face, as he struggled with how tight the water made his robe suck to his body. You know, if you've ever jumped into a pool with clothes on, it's just so constricting. As Jesus has water running down his face, his robe is sucking to his body. What happened in that moment should affect you and stir your heart today. And here's what happened. The Trinitarian God gave us a glimpse into the very nature of God. When Jesus came up out of that water, the Trinitarian God gave us a sneak peek into what eternity past and eternity future is like with God. And so what we have here in Mark chapter 1 is nothing short of a miracle. What we have here is God letting us peek into his very heart. Yes, it was amazing that the heavens were ripped open. That's pretty cool. And if people had iPhones back then and they could see it, everybody would have pulled theirs out and started recording it. But what is incredible here is not the heavens ripping open, it's that God is actually showing us what he is like. Mark says the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Not a dove, okay? The Holy Spirit is not a dove. Mark says the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. He fluttered, if you will, slowly descended upon Jesus. So the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven to equip and empower Jesus, the Son of God, for his messianic ministry. And this event that's taking place here fulfills a number of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 11, verse 2, when Isaiah says this of the coming Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
But also Isaiah 42, verse 1, where Yahweh says of his servant, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So when the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven and descends upon Jesus, clearly Mark is telling us that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament because he's the anointed one, the one who was anointed with the Spirit of God. And then we also see when that happens, God the Father picks up the mic and he turns it up to 11 in verse 11. And he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, there's so much going on here in this episode. We, we actually catch a glimpse of the inner Trinitarian nature of God right here at this spot in the Jordan River. What seems like a normal spot in a river where the water is murky, murky because there's a lot of people coming and going out to be baptized. What we actually see, though, is we get this clear and this clean glimpse into the incredible love and joy that exists between God the Father and his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So if we slow down, and we ponder what is happening here, and we just don't rush over these words, we don't rush over what is a very familiar scene to most of us, if we slow down, we will catch a glimpse of the Trinity. We'll begin to see that God the Father sent Jesus to make himself known, not just with a bunch of information to download, God wants us to see that this love that eternally exists between Father and Son is supposed to be known and enjoyed by us. So if we eavesdrop here, we'll hear God whispering, I'm not a hoarder. I want to share my glory with you, and that's why I gave you my Son. Speaking of my Son, oh, be still my beating heart. Oh, how I am so pleased with my son, Jesus. And God wants us to get caught up and swept away with that love that he has for his son, Jesus. It's why Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf so that we could get swept away by this loving fellowship, this loving relationship between father and son and spirit. And so Jesus got soaked by the Jordan River so that the Amazon River of God's love would just wash all over us. I've quoted this a few times, but I love this quote by F.B. Meyer. He said, the love of God for you is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a single daisy. Jesus got saturated by the Jordan River so that God's love would flow down like the Amazon River to us and water us just these single, weak little daisies. So stop and take that in, y'all. Feel his love right now come like a tidal wave and wash over you this morning. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care if you yelled at your kids this morning getting ready for church. I don't care if you got in a fight with your spouse in the car this morning on the way to church. And I don't care if you're still mad at them. Let the Amazon River of God's love 
wash over you. And then when you come up for air, hear God the Father saying to you this morning, you are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. That's reality, friends. That's truth. That's not fake news. And it's not based on your feelings. It's not based on your performance, how good you are. It's based precisely on Jesus' performance for you. God the Father was pleased with Jesus precisely because of what he did. But what did Jesus do? This is the first that we've heard of anything that Jesus has done in Mark's gospel. So how is the Father already pleased with Jesus? Well, the answer is this. For 30 years prior to his baptism, Jesus was obeying his Father. He was refusing to sin. He was refusing to give in to temptation. He was fulfilling all righteousness. He was obeying God's law for us. For 30 years, no sin for 30 years. Perfection for 30 years. So when he comes up out of the water, this is why God the Father is so pleased with Jesus. Because in his incarnation, he has been obeying his Father and fulfilling his mission. And so at this point in Jesus' life, it's as if the Father can't contain his pleasure anymore. He must speak. He must pick up the mic and tell the whole world how much he loves his Son he must express his joy. He must express his, his, express his pleasure. He must express his delight in his son Jesus. And here's why. Because Jesus is the second Adam. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is Adam again. Jesus came to do what both Adam failed to do and what the nation of Israel failed to do. That was his mission. And Mark expects us to catch these Easter eggs that he has hidden in these episodes. Mark expects us to pick up on these allusions to Adam, these allusions to the original creation, because he mentions here the Spirit hovering over Jesus. Just as the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis chapter 1 at creation, so too a new work, a new creation is happening here at the Jordan River. Jesus is the new Adam, the better Adam, and he will succeed where the first Adam failed. Whereas Adam sinned and failed and ushered in death and destruction and sin, Jesus will obey, and Jesus will succeed, and Jesus will begin redeeming everything and making all things new. And because of Jesus, one day everything sad will come untrue. So Mark is alluding to Adam here, and he wants us to get that and see that Easter egg that he's planted in his episode. He'll also do it again in a few verses. But before we leave the Jordan River, Mark wants us to pick on something else he is alluding to, and that's the nation of Israel. Mark is showing us that Jesus is not only the better Adam, Jesus is also the true and the better Israel. Jesus will come and do what the nation of Israel could not do. He will completely obey the law, the Mosaic law. Mark has Jesus here in the Jordan River, getting baptized to fulfill all righteousness because what Jesus is doing here, he is retracing the steps of the nation of Israel. Jesus is going into the water just like Israel did 
when they came out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, remember? And then where did they go? Where did Israel go after crossing the Red Sea? They went into the wilderness. And what does Jesus do here? He goes down into the water. And where does he go? Where does he go after he is baptized? Well, you don't know yet because we paused the TV and Mark hasn't told us yet. So let's get back to binge watching Jesus so we can see just where Jesus goes after he comes out of the water. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So do you see what Mark is getting at here? Jesus is the new and better Israel. Jesus is going to do what the nation of Israel could not do. Jesus goes straight into the wilderness just like the nation of Israel did under Moses. Are you having a light bulb moment yet? Like, ding! Is it registering? Jesus goes into the water. He comes out and goes straight into the wilderness. And how long was he there? Oh, 40 days. And how long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. Wait a minute, Mark. The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, and you're telling me that Jesus just spent 40 days there? Okay, okay. Oh, I see what you're doing. I see where you're going with this. We're running on all cylinders now. That's an allusion to a Brian Regan joke about Pop-Tarts. Some of you might get that. If not, you need to YouTube it. Mark expects us to be running on all cylinders and be like, I see what you're doing here. Talking about the river, talking about the wilderness, talking about 40 days. The light bulbs above our heads should be lighting up now because Jesus is retracing the steps of the nation of Israel and he's going to succeed where they failed. And fail they did. They were tempted in the wilderness and they failed. They spent 40 years roaming in the wilderness. And the wilderness is exactly the spot where Jesus will do battle with the devil and undergo severe testing and severe temptation for 40 days. Now, Mark doesn't give us the temptation account like Matthew and Luke do. Mark just tells us that Jesus was being tempted by Satan. But he wants us to know that this was 40 days of very intense temptations. Now, of course, Jesus has spent his first 30 years prior to his baptism vigorously resisting temptation. But this was a very intense time of temptation in the wilderness. And I say all of that because of what Matthew and Luke tell us in their Gospels about what Satan said to Jesus during this time in the wilderness. He said, if you are the Son of God, then do this. Remember what God the Father had just said to Jesus back in verse 11? You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And what does the devil say to Jesus when he's in the wilderness? If you are the son of God, then do this. So Jesus gets these two statements back to back. God the Father, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then he gets Satan coming up and saying, if you are the son of God, then do this. Satan attacks the identity of Jesus. He attacks this a very special relationship that Jesus has with his father. And does he not do that with us? Are you really his child? Look at the way you talk to your kids. Look at the way you talk to your spouse. Look at what you saw on the internet. 
Look at how you reacted in the roundabout. And you think you're a son or a daughter of God? He attacks our identity. This is his mode of operation. It's what he does. So Jesus was tempted for 40 days, and he never gave in. But Jesus wasn't alone out there in the wilderness. Mark tells us that Jesus had a few very, very interesting visitors. Wild animals and ministering angels. That's pretty unique. Mark expects us to be up to speed now. And so when he says that Jesus was being tempted, and when he was being tempted, wild animals were with him, he expects us to be smart cookies and make the connection here. What does Mark want us to see? He wants to see and connect this incident of Jesus with the wild animals being tempted with Adam's temptation in the Garden of Eden. Because in the garden, who was Adam with? He was with the animals, naming them all, but they were peaceful. And in that perfect, lush, peaceful surrounding, Adam sinned when that talking snake showed up and started asking questions. But Jesus is in a very different place, far from a lush garden. Jesus is in a dry, barren desert. He's surrounded by wild animals who would like nothing more than to eat him for dinner. Jesus is fasting, and these wild animals want to feast on him. And that talking serpent shows up again and starts asking questions. And yet Jesus never sinned. So Mark wants to see a, wants us to see the contrast here between Jesus and Adam. You have Adam, perfect lush setting. Surrounded by peaceful animals, eating his heart out on all the fruit that God said he could eat in the garden. And then Adam ate from the one forbidden tree. Now contrast that with Jesus. He's in a dry, barren desert, surrounded by wild animals who want to eat him for dinner. And Jesus is not eating anything. And so you see the contrast? Adam feasted and Jesus fasted. Adam feasted and then sinned. And Jesus fasted and did not sin. One man ruined this world as we know it. And one man right now is making all things new. But Mark also wants his original audience who were in Rome to make another connection. If the reports are true historically, the Emperor Nero was known for persecuting Christians. Some were thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseums. Some of them were tied to bulls and then dragged to their death. Some Christians had wild animals. They would skin these animals and sew them into the skins of Christians and then release them into the wild and let these wild animals run after them and eat them. So Mark wants his original audience, who are Christians in Rome, that he's writing his gospel to, he wants them to see that even though they are suffering, they are not alone in their suffering. Jesus knows what it is like to suffer. They have a Savior who was not granted immunity to suffering. They have a merciful high priest in Jesus who was tempted just like they have been. As the preacher of Hebrews says in chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
even though Mark's audience was suffering for their faith, he wants to remind them of their identity, that they are sons of God because of Jesus. They have not been forsaken. Even though they are suffering, they are still God's beloved sons. And don't we need this encouragement too? Haven't you gone through a difficult season of life full of sadness, full of sorrow, full of overwhelming suffering where you just didn't think you're going to make it another day? You just didn't want to get out of bed? And haven't you at times doubted God's love for you? Haven't you wondered where God was as you were suffering? Where are you, God? Do you see? Sure, we all have been there. And what we see is that the whole time that we have suffered, God was whispering these words to us. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Even though you're suffering, I'm well pleased. God sent angels to comfort Jesus, and he comforts us when we suffer. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Even when we doubt him, his love never fades away. Isn't that amazing? And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what is transpiring here in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is the second Adam, but he came in first place, and we get the trophy. Let that sink in. The second Adam came in first place and we get the trophy, which is sonship, which is adoption into God's family. That's the gospel. Jesus qualifies us to receive the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, under the old covenant, other people's disobedience could keep people out of the land. That happened when Israel went into exile in Babylon. There were God-fearing Jews who wanted to honor Yahweh and serve him and love him. And they had to go into exile because the majority of the nation had turned away from the Lord. So you could be undercut from the inheritance under the old covenant because of other people. That's a raw deal, isn't it? But in the new covenant, no one can disqualify us. Not even ourselves. In the new covenant, Jesus qualifies us. He does it all. He fulfilled all righteousness for us. All we have to do is believe. As Jesus said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work that we have to do to get to heaven is simply to believe in Jesus to open the empty hands of faith and say, I ain't getting in unless you get me in. That's how we get the inheritance. That's how we are justified forever. Martin Luther said, those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs by the righteousness of the law or by their own righteousness are slaves who will never receive the inheritance even though they work themselves to death with their great effort. In other words, the good news that was rediscovered during the Reformation is that we are justified by faith and we can't earn nor lose our inheritance. Grace lay dormant in churches and during the Reformation, Martin Luther and the other reformers woke grace up. The heartbeat of the Reformation was this. In Christ, God is pleased with you. Grace is the good news of the gospel. 
that God is always holding on to us. No matter how we fail him, no matter how fickle we are, his love endures forever. Grace is different from law. The law demands, the law makes demands. That's what it does. It demands perfection of us. But grace doesn't make demands. Grace doesn't come and make demands of us to hold on to God. The gospel doesn't do that because the, go- the gospel is good news. It's a promise that no matter how weak we are, how much we fail, how bad our love for God stinks, how fickle we are, God will not let us go. He's not like us. We let people go when they fail us. He doesn't do that. The gospel declares to unfaithful sinners that we live in the perpetual favor and the unabated delight of God, and it's all because of his son Jesus. Understand this, Christian. You live, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of God. Now let that sink in. If you are a Christian, it is because God chose you. It is because he placed you forever in the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And there is nothing you can do to get yourself in that sphere. And there is nothing you can do to get yourself out of that sphere. So please let me repeat that. There is nothing that you can do to get yourself in the sphere of God's perpetual favor and unabated delight. And there is nothing that you can do to get yourself out of that sphere. Why? Because God has done it all. Jesus has done it all. It's all grace. In the new covenant, all of the commandments and curses of the law have been taken care of by Jesus for us. He fulfilled the law for us through his obedient life. Theologians refer to this as his active obedience. He actively obeyed the law for us, fulfilling all righteousness. That's why J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, said on his deathbed, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. That's his life that he lived for us. And then Jesus also bore the curse of the law for us through his obedient death. Theologians refer to this as his passive obedience, that he lays his life down. And so we're saved, not just through the death of Jesus. We have to talk about being saved through the life of Jesus too. We're united to his life and death. We're in union with him. And so what does it mean to be in union with Christ? Because that's the phrase I throw around almost in every sermon. And I've shared this with you before, but it's so good. I just have to share it again. Sinclair Ferguson explains, in short, what it means to be in union with Christ. What it means that Jesus actively obeyed the law on our behalf and died in our place. He says, it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? It's as, imagine, it's as, as if all the medals and honors of Jesus have been pinned to your chest, as if you did them, and then you walk into heaven, and all of heaven stands up, and they salute you because of Jesus. Not because you're good, because you're not. So no swagger there. There's a little bit of swagger you can have because you can say, I'm in union with Christ, but you can't go into heaven with swagger thinking because you got there. It's because of him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that God's law required of you and he died the death that God's law says you deserve because of your sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus' performance for you is what guarantees your eternal inheritance. 
The good news of the gospel is that the eternal Son of God has secured the inheritance for all of God's adopted sons and daughters. Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent the Holy Spirit in in our hearts to reassure us that we are the adopted sons of God so that we'll cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says that in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Abba, Father. These are intimate terms. The same terms that Jesus uses with God the Father. And because we have been adopted into God's family, we're his beloved children and we can take those words on our lips. J.I. Packer said, were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. The gospel can be summed up in those three words, adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. Through propitiation means that Jesus turned aside God's anger at us and our sins, and he did that on the cross. When Jesus took the curse of the law on himself for us, the wrath of God was turned. It was removed from us and went squarely to Jesus. That's the gospel. Adoption through propitiation. And this was at the heart of the Reformation justification by faith. But as J.I. Packer also says, it gets even sweeter than justification, if you can believe it. And that's exactly what Mark is shooting for here. As we close, listen to J.I. Packer again. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, that that is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have not peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. 
In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You can be right with God today. You can be loved on and cared for by him. If you repent, which just means come clean about your sin and rebellion, that you live like you're the king and you've offended the real king, you come clean about that and you trust what Jesus has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. Will you come? When you trust in Jesus, when you're adopted into God's family, God says this to you every day hence, and he is personally saying it to you right now. So listen to the words of your heavenly father. You are my beloved son, and with you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, what amazing words. Only your son deserves rightfully to hear them. And yet, because you're so good, you invite your enemies, you invite scoundrels, you invite the riffraff to not only come out of the pig pen, but to be robed. And you throw parties for us. It's all grace, Father. We don't deserve it. And so we just say, thank you this morning, Lord. It is well with our souls because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.